Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Incubus of Plague edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, and if I sound like I'm talking underwater, it's because I feel that way. You sound a little sultry. I sound, you think maybe I should have called this the you know the Kathleen Turner edition. Yeah, there you May, go. Oh, that's even better. <coughs> May West. Look at the May West edition. Come up and see me sometime <laughs> after I've gotten over my raging sinus infection, preferably. Um, but you were sick too tomorrow. I was, but I'm feeling. You're feeling much better. Slight, a little bit hoarse. Yeah, so we just Yeah, Ben apparently is invincible. I I do not succumb to mere microorganisms. To mere microorganisms. <laughs> Superior genes. You're gonna need that strength, my friend, when Vladimir Putin comes for you. I, I'm still waiting. What if he tries to get you sick with like some sort of virus? Well, you he'll know, play dirty. Some sort of he'll radioactive. Yeah, exactly. He'll prick you with polonium. Yeah, it's I'm, gonna be like a James <laughs> Bond movie. <laughs> Look, I'm prepared for whatever comes right. uh, with Mr. Putin. He's bring uh, it on. Bring it on, yeah. says I. You've made peace. Are you? Are you? Is there any progress on this duel that you have challenged him to? Has the Russian press picked this up? Uh, no. Although the Russian language press in Latvia did a long interview oh. with me about it, so it has had some publicity in Russian, nice. although not in Russia. It's really um, caught on. Yeah, it's caught on. Um, you must be very proud tomorrow. I, I have complete faith in my husband. <laughs> Shaking her head with bewilderment since 19, near, 1991 or two. It's tomorrow it is. Uh, oh, my word. Okay. Well, lots to talk about on the podcast this week. It's not been a uh, slow news week by any means. Uh, two weeks after a Russian airliner fell from the sky in Egypt, will we ever know how the plane crashed? GOP presidential candidates are all over the map with their foreign policy plans plus a modest proposal for closing Guantanamo. And later we'll have fun in object lessons, too. Um, I'm going to start with my wordplay, which I guess is not really a wordplay. There have been many words spilled on the crash of MetroJet 9268. Some spilled by one Shane Harris. Some spilled by me, yeah, exactly. And we are no closer to definitively knowing whether or not uh, this plane was actually brought down by uh, a bomb or not. People seem like 90% sure, pretty sure, in the absence of any forensic evidence at the crash scene, it seems that people are not ready to quite go all the way to 100%, but that all of the indications are um, that it was a bomb. And I thought it would be interesting, to, A, just to get like your guys' take on this, because it's such an unusual story, and that usually when we have these kinds of aircraft you know, accidents, it seems like pretty definitively we clear up what was the cause pretty quickly. Pan Am 103, it took them about a week to determine that it was a bomb. So I'm curious what you guys are making of it, but also, you know, the the broader kind of the geopolitics of this. I did a story last week, or this week, sorry, uh, quoting intelligence officials, some of whom were almost gleeful over the idea that this would compel Vladimir Putin to, you know, ramp up his military activity in Syria 
draw him deeper into the quagmire, and maybe finally take the gloves off and start whacking Isis. So can I pose a, uh, quer- a question? Does it matter if it was a bomb, or does the only thing that matters is whether Vladimir Putin believes it was a bomb? Yeah, well, I, I think from the geopolitical consequence angle, the latter is what matters. In other words, does Putin think that ISIS is targeting Russia? And, of course, you know, one premise of the Russian intervention in Syria is that ISIS in Syria or the growth of jihadi radicalism in the Syrian-Iraqi arena presents a threat to Russia in some sense, you know, returnees from the jihad or whatever. Um, So this would certainly reinforce that premise. Uh, Now, whether it would actually lead Putin to alter his strategy in Syria and whack ISIS, as those intelligence officials were suggesting, there I'm a little more skeptical. If it reinforces his sense that, you know, ungovernability in Syria is um, is a threat because it leaves room for ISIS, and what you need is a strong man who can control this territory, and that means you have to save Bashar al-Assad and push back, you know, the challenge to him, I, I don't really see how that you know, increases a, a Russian focus on ISIS. It simply reinforces Russia's determination to back their horse right. in the Syrian civil war. I think it matters if it's a bomb, if for no other reason than ISIS has now developed the capability to blow up airliners. Well, so, so okay, right. If you're evaluating ISIS, it matters very... Or it's ma- affiliates. It matters very much whether it's a bomb. But if you're evaluating the geopolitics of Putin... Yeah. I'm not sure it really does. That's right. That's right. As long as he perceives it's a bomb or, you know, I mean, not to get too wag the dog about it, but it might, he might think that it's in his interest to tell people that it was a bomb. Well, I, I also just think, like, w- there's a reason why there's such lack of clarity here. Is there a lack of forensic evidence or is there a lack of investigation and preservation of evidence that could reveal the cause? Is, you know, and we're dealing here with, Russia, not great on transparency, and Egypt, not great on transparency, in Sinai, where they're really not great on transparency. You know, our norm for airplane accidents, there's a set of standards that a lot of Western governments um, rely on and have agreed on, but those norms are not being applied in this case. This investigation is not being carried out according to those standards. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised that we don't have definitive answers, and we, we might never get them. And it's actually worse than that because Russia <laughs> is one of the countries in the world with the worst aviation safety record. Right. It's and and they've had two bo- planes blown up before by suicide bombers. And Egypt is a country that has a history in the aviation sector of not facing the realities of what investigations into air disasters show when those are politically inconvenient. Right. The Egyptians were fiercely resistant to the uh, the NTSB and FBI's investigation of the Egypt air flight that went down because the evidence, you know, showed that their pilot had intentionally crashed it, um, and they really you know, resisted the findings of that investigation for a very long time. So you're dealing with two countries that don't, that don't really play straight in the aviation investigation department. And presumably don't have a high level of technical acumen for these kinds of investigations. Perhaps not, but I, I think the, the net result, it's, it's another 
a broader consequence we can look at, which is the uncertainty around this, and it's going to be continued uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, I think creates a, a, a broader anxiety about security in Egypt, security in Sinai, aviation security over the Middle East airspace, and all of that is bad. It's bad for Egypt. It's bad for the tourism industry. It's bad for the global economy. Um, and it's bad for, you know, more broadly, the perceptions of external publics and external actors about the Middle East. So, you know, it would be having greater clarity about what happened to this flight is important not only for, you know, what it might tell us about ISIS and the threat that ISIS presents to global security, but it's also important because the, the sort of generalized anxiety about the Middle East mess is not helpful in generating rational policy responses. Which means it is helpful for ISIS. Uh, Nor nor is it helpful to have aviation disasters that you know are intentionally caused or you're 90% confident are intentionally caused, but you don't know how they were done. Because then what happens is you just ramp up security in general in a kind of an indiscriminate way rather than saying, okay, was this an inside thing where somebody was bribed, in which case you need to look at personnel. I mean, the more you know, the more, the better positioned you are to respond in a targeted fashion. Right, and I think in the end, what I'm hearing from talking to people is that there are, you know, multiple theories being entertained, and it's in the absence of that, you know, definitive public evidence that these kinds of other, you know, ideas start to swirl and kind of divide people into camps and, well, I think it was this kind of bomb or that kind of bomb. And it strikes me that that is really good for ISIS to create that uncertainty. And one of the first questions that people had about in the wake of the crash was, well, why hasn't ISIS come out with some slick 20-minute video, you know, maybe even footage of the guy putting it on the plane? I mean, where where was the what we're accustomed to, the really highly produced video taking credit for it? And, you know, two thoughts on that. One is, I think maybe it's possible the Sinai affiliate just kind of did doesn't, it. Doesn't have the means. It doesn't have arm. the means, right. And just sort of did it, inspired by, in which case maybe they picked a soft target at Sharm el-Sheikh. Or potentially, you know, ISIS has decided to change up the playbook and be like, you know what? This fear, uncertainty, and doubt only works to our advantage and makes everyone anxious and makes everyone turn right. against each other. And we're already getting plenty of recruits, so we don't have to advertise. Right. And, you know, frankly, it's, you know, would you necessarily want to claim credit for it if you thought it was going to incite an even more powerful military response that might wipe you out? If this were an American airplane, I think you'd be talking about potentially, you know, combat troops in the ground in Syria. Maybe? Do you think? I think that debate would be getting a lot more traction. Yeah, I mean, that's... Okay, that's that's it. Don't you think? I think that's a different question. Um, cl- if there were clear attribution, um, I think there would be a clearer response from whomever was targeted. And I think yeah. you know the Russians are doing what they're doing in Syria for their own reasons. They don't want to change course, um, and until something hits them in the face, they won't have to. Right. I mean, this is it's a very weird situation where you know we and the West more generally can plausibly say, hey, you know, other than a sort of general commitment to CT and, and air safety, we don't really have a dog in this fight. You know, you know, that's an Egyptian airport and a Russian plane. It's not U.S. people. Um, it's really somebody else's problem. Well, on, the other hand, on the other hand, 
Putin, who does not want to be, wants to claim to be in a fight with ISIS while actually being in a fight with the Syrian opposition, can, you know, as long as it's not clear that it was ISIS, it's not entirely inconsistent with what he's, you know, trying to do. And so sort of everybody gets to sort of treat it as somebody else's problem. Boy, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think for the United States, it's tougher than that because, you know, Politically, diplomatically, and practically, um, the, the U.S. government has positioned itself as the leader of, you know, the global counterterrorism coalition. And, you know, so if this is a terrorist attack, even if it wasn't targeting U.S. interests, uh, the U.S. would still claim some um, moral authority and some diplomatic leadership in responding to it. And, you know, I think from the perspective of what Kerry is trying to do around the Syrian negotiations, I've heard, you know, at least one theory similar to what your intelligence officials are telling you, Shane, um, that maybe from a diplomatic perspective, this helps bring the Russians along uh, on the U.S. strategy for Syrian negotiations because it focuses them on the evil of ISIS and the need for everybody around the table in Vienna to unify against ISIS. I'm skeptical, as I said, for, for, you know, reasons I already relayed, that that's going to be the effect, but that theory is there, and I think that, too, pushes the United States to care about this, to be involved in it, to try and have a proactive response to it, even though it's not, narrowly speaking, an American problem. Hmm. Okay, let's move on to our next wordplay. Tamara, unlike the Metrojet crash, GOP presidential candidates' foreign policies are crystal clear Crystal totally clear. coherent, definitive. You know, I, I'm so grateful that we have uh, a set of candidates for the Republican presidential nomination who have thought so deeply and with such great sophistic- sophistication about the challenges America faces in the world today. But honestly, I think what I'm enjoying about watching these debates, and, you know, last night's debate actually had foreign policy content, which um, is a step forward in uh, the role of foreign policy. A foreign policy kind of in a debate that was supposed to be about the economy, which was interesting. Which was interesting, and some of the foreign policy content was about trade. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it ended up being about Vladimir Putin Ooh. and about American leadership. And you Did know, any of the candidates suggest that he fight me? Yeah. <laughs> I think on the undercard somebody brought okay, it up. Okay, I, yeah. I hope Lindsey Graham at least <laughs> talked about it. Cause you need to work on them, Ben. That's clearly your next angle for this I think campaign. it should be a big question in the next debate. Mm-hmm. Sure it should. Okay, try anyway, to plant that with one of the, the moderators. Brookings debate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the chess clock debate that the, that the Republican candidates are going to have. No, but I, what is striking, it, you know, now that they've had a chance to talk together and interact on foreign policy in last night's discussion, is that there is a real divergence um, amongst the Republican candidates And it's not simply a sort of Rand Paul libertarian or (laughs) neo-isolationist side versus Rubio. Right. It's a little more interesting than that because you had Donald Trump kind of lining up a little bit with Rand Paul saying, well, I think it's good that Putin's whacking ISIS in Syria, and I don't think the United States needs to go around bombing everywhere in the world. Let other people do that work. You know, whereas you had... Uh, Ted Cruz and, and Marco Rubio lining up more on the American leadership in the world means we have to be the strongest, we have to be the most involved, we have to be the most interventionist. Um, 
And so you really did have two starkly different visions of what America's role in the world should be within this Republican debate. So amidst all the incoherence, um, probably symbolized most concretely by Ben Carson's meandering, contentless, and thoroughly incoherent response to a question about American troops on the ground in Syria. Um, So I don't even know how to characterize his stance. I don't think he does either. (laughs) What was striking to me is amidst all the incoherence, there were two starkly different visions of America's role in the world. And what do you guys think? Well, I didn't watch it. Um, but I'm, I'm, which I think is kind of the only way, sane way to handle these debates. Um, is to just not engage. Just, just read the, the live tweets? Well, yeah. Yeah, so, so I do sometimes, it's much I, more amusing. I do follow them on Twitter, but I did find with this last debate that just being in denial that it was happening at all was pretty pleasurable. But here's my question. How would you characterize these two streams? Is it simply, you know, robust, engagement of a neocon variety versus sort of neo-isolationism, or is there more gradations and uh, nuance than that? I feel like, I mean, look, I mean, to the extent that anybody has what you might qualify as an extreme kind of position, it seems like Rand Paul is pretty, I don't want to call him extremist, but he's very clearly staked out this idea of we cannot afford nor do we need a military of the size and scale that we have and that intervention. And I, For I think, him, it's a budget issue. It's a budget issue. Not it's not so much, yeah, it's not issue. a foreign policy, non-interventionism issue. And for Rubio, it feels like, it, it doesn't exactly feel neocon, but it seems to have sort of strains of that. I actually think it is pretty neocon. And, and this is a quote from a fundraising email that he sent out the morning after the debate. He wrote to his supporters, American strength will deter aggressors, meaning fewer wars, not more. Sadly, even some Republicans suggest that we can't afford to keep our military strongest in the world. The reality is we can't afford not to. And that's two core principles of neoconservatism on, at least current day neoconservatism yeah. on foreign policy, you know, boost the defense budget and make the military big, the biggest and strongest in the world. Um, and number two, that American leadership means American strength and that exercising and demonstrating American strength is what preserves security. Rand Paul is also being coy if he's merely framing this as a budget issue now. Because in his whole, you know, a year ago and six months ago and... 18 months ago when he was on his drones kick. You know, his whole argument was very consistent with that of the anti-interventionist left, that we're creating all these people who hate us by interfering in in their countries. And uh, he really did sound like what the right traditionally calls the sort of blame America first left. Um, You know, with, with particular reference to all of our... Uh, you know, interventionist instincts. And so, yeah, there, I, I take your point that there's a budgetary element in the way he's talking about it now, but I think there's much more behind it than that. Well, it's, I mean, it's a very, you're absolutely right about where he was before he became a presidential candidate. He was also calling for, you know, a, a drastic cutback in foreign aid. He wanted to end foreign aid to Israel. He's reversed himself on that question now. 
And, you know, what he said last night is, I want a strong defense, but I don't want us to be bankrupt. In other words, I want to have my cake and eat it, too. So is that merely, you know, a, a moderation of somebody who wants to be a viable presidential candidate? Yeah, cut rate le- neocon. <laughs> <laughs> right, neoconservatism on He does cheap. shop at discount suit stores. Well, there you go. Um, you know, and, and his real beliefs are more on this libertarian end, or, it, you know, is he actually learning more about the issues and realizing that you can't uh, have such a stark withdrawal of America from the world? But... Regardless, I mean, you know, and, and Rubio, by the way, when Paul w- was doing his drone stuff, um, Rubio was criticizing for him for it on exactly the grounds you cited, Ben. He's, he was here at Brookings, um, and gave a speech critiquing people within the Republican Party who held those views and said, if you go that far to the right, you end up on the left. That was exactly what he said. Um, so, you know, maybe these guys are just playing out in the presidential campaign. Uh, a broader philosophical divide that's been there between them for a long time. Just one last question. This well, it doesn't have to last, but Trump's response to the questions. I mean, Trump sort of had a wanting to get in, like, oh, me too, I want to talk about it too. And it was yeah. just this, it's going to be so great and so big, no one will mess with us. And then Carson had his, you know, absurd, you know, stream of consciousness. It really was stream of consciousness. Just bizarro. Is this kind of a moment where the American people look up here and they see, you know, Cruz and Rubio and and Rand Paul, maybe not taking out the positions they would individually take, but having clear, articulated positions based on facts and based on consideration of the issues, and they look at the two front runners in the Republican field for commander in chief and realize these two guys don't have a frickin' clue between the two of them about what these issues actually I mean, they they really reveal themselves to be just Ignorant, but Shane, that's uh, been true policy. of both of them on a it's, range of issues. That's true. All it hasn't of these, hurt them yet. and and they they, they seem to be f- affirmatively attractive for that reason in somewhat different ways. Trump, because you know the oh, it'll just but be so big, I'm trade. so great. Doesn't about trade and the economy and jobs, and he can credibly talk to that. I mean, whoa, 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 you're whoa. saying Shane that there's a commander in chief test, right? And that when it comes to foreign policy, it's more, their outsider status is more of a vulnerability than it is on other issues. Yes. That's an interesting hypothesis. I think we don't know yet. I would, you know, but I'm totally not buying any of this. I'm totally not buying any of this. That Carson and Trump revealing their ignorance played it in very different ways. Carson didn't want to stake out a clear position on anything. Trump staked out a series of very clear, mutually contradictory positions on every foreign policy issue that was put before him. Yeah, let's let's review the bidding on these two for a minute. Because <laughs> I, I think we're... I'm we're, trying to give them credit. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you, you may be trying a little too hard. Trump is the guy who said that uh, John McCain is not a war hero because he was captured and... Um, shouldn't have been, he shouldn't have been captured. We're going to build a big wall, throw out all the Mexicans, leave the rapists on the other side of the wall, and let the good ones back. He's the guy who said that uh, he's just going to be tough, and everybody's going to he's going to have a in currency lo- war with China. He's going to have a current yeah. He's going to have a total trade war with basically everybody. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, Megan Kelly is leaking blood out of her wherever. Right. And whose popularity was sustained through all of that. 
Ben Carson of defending Donald Trump. Go ahead. <laughs> ben Carson, meanwhile, is the guy who said the Holocaust happened because Jews were not sufficiently armed in Europe, that the pyramids are were grain or grain uh, silos, um, and uh, that uh, he was admitted to West Point uh, on a full scholarship, though he didn't apply. I mean, the, what, and his popularity has been and, and his pop, his popularity has sustained through all these things. Why on earth would you think that that there's like some commander in chief test that they're going to fail and people are going to uh, say, okay. "Oh my God, you well, know here's why, why. Here's I why. withdraw this <laughs> this subject, this wordplay. Forget I even brought it up because. I, I thought, maybe it was wishful thinking on my part, that there was an actual substantive foreign policy debate going on in the Republican primary. But you've convinced me that there's not. <laughs> there was not. No, no. We're all just saying what we want to say. Well, wait a minute. Maybe there is a substantive foreign policy debate going on in the Republican Party, just not involving the two frontrunners. And that beneath it, just as like there's actually a lot of interesting debates going on in the Republican primary, it's just that the the, the two people who were leading the pack are not really participants in any of those debates. They're just basically both saying, because me. All right, well, I'm going to remain seized of this issue. I haven't given up hope, Republicans, for a real foreign policy debate. Yeah. I still think there's a commander-in-chief test, and they failed it. Okay, moving on. Uh, ben, tell us about there's this a new proposal for closing Guantanamo, and it's super simple. Yeah, it's really super simple. It's the sort of Nike proposal. It's <laughs> just do it. Um, and uh, this was floated uh, this weekend by uh, the former White House counsel, Greg Craig, and the former... Uh, Guantanamo special envoy Cliff Sloan in an op-ed in the Washington Post. And their basic argument was, uh, you know, you want to close Guantanamo? Just go ahead and do it, Mr. President. You have all the constitutional authority you need. However, <laughs> um, the White House, interestingly, is not dismissing this at all. And Presumably they were aware of the op-ed before it was published. I think that's right. I think on Friday, so be- the two days before this op-ed was published, Josh Ernest, very specifically at his press availability, did not take unilateral action off the table. He was asked, and he said he wasn't going to take any tools off the table. The president's committed to closing Guantanamo. So the question is, why seven years in is President Obama suddenly talking about defying acts of Congress in order to close Guantanamo? Because he can, because he's seven years in. I mean, it's... This is no different than immigration. Oh, right? no, it is different from immigration. Because immigration, um, he, you know, first of all, he did it with sort of a year and a half left in, in, in office, and Congress wasn't specifically passing laws against his immigration objective. They're just not passing laws, you know, to implement what he wants to do. Here, Congress is specifically passing, you can't transfer people, you, you can't build bring people to the United States, and you can't build new facilities here. And I think the reason they suddenly have really put this on the table in an active way is that Congress just passed the NDAA right. again with these provisions. Obama vetoed it, and Congress then passed it again with these provisions even strengthened in it with veto-proof majorities in both houses. So Obama's suddenly facing this situation 
where he is either going to do this on his own sometime in the next year, or he's not going to get it done and he's going to go down in history as the guy who promised to close Guantanamo on his second day in office and didn't. So here's my question mm -hmm. for you both. Yes or no? Does he pull the trigger and go all executive power on us to close Guantanamo, or does he wuss out? Oh, wow. So, I, I mean, I think... It, I think he'll do it, and I think he'll do it both because it's a legacy issue for him, as you said, but also because, you know, there's a point in a president's term when he starts thinking about how he wants to leave things for his successor, no matter who that may be, and, you know, what if he doesn't do it, it ain't going to get done, and I think Guantanamo falls into that category if this president, who was elected, you know, on a platform of closing it, doesn't close it, no future president is going to have the political cred to do it. So it's not, it's not just a legacy for his term. It's a legacy for the American presidency for all time, and he can do it. Okay, so let me push you on that, because it's a legacy issue in both directions. On the one hand, to do it you means your legacy is, yeah, you close Guantanamo. But in order to do it, you also have to create the legacy of being the guy who came in there, you know, waxing about, you know, uh, complying with acts of Congress in the national security space, uh, who would never <coughs> behave like the Bush administration did with respect to the torture statute, who then turns around and using signing statements defies an act of Congress, um, you know, about in, in an area that, that is you know, most people, most scholars think within Congress's competency to, to legislate. And uh, yet the broader public perception, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on public opinion here, is that this would be, that, that this would be bringing American uh, practice back in line with our legal norms, regardless of what laws Congress has actually passed. You know, so in, in the, in the politics of it, he can get away with it, in other words. Um, he wins the political argument even if he loses the legal argument. A, B, he can do it. It'll get challenged in the courts after he leaves office. And so he still gets to have done it. And, and the question con congressional opponents face is, if the prisoners are transferred and the place is shut down, is it worth going to the wall to reopen it and transfer them back, right. that's a very hard thing to envision. I think he knows if he does this, it stays closed no matter what the courts say. What do you think, Shane? I'm with tomorrow on this one. I think he does it uh, for many of the reasons you just articulated. I think that politically he wins it. He comes in and says, I promise to close this. It's not in keeping with our values. I still believe those things are true. The Congress has defied me. I'm not going to let this happen. He wins that political argument. My question is whether he does it in the relatively near future where he can then oversee and administer the relocation of these prisoners, or does he do it a la, you know, the, the pardons on the way out the door and drop it as an executive order? I would guess probably the answer to that question would be, you know, A, who is going to be the next president. But I think he would want to do it earlier so that the next person couldn't just simply ignore the order, and you'd want to get the wheels in motion. Right? I think yeah. as a practical matter, you'd have, to do, he'd have to do it quickly. Yeah. Um, Why? Well... Because first of all, if you if you don't do it with a certain amount of shock and awe, 
Congress has tools to force you to do it, like all the other appropriations bills and anything else that you might want to get funded. But isn't um, that an argument for doing it next winter? Well, the, the question is, can you do it? I think whenever you do it, you have to do it pretty suddenly so that it gets done. This is the problem that he had with K when he tried to move KSM here to the Southern District of New York. You know, they, they sort announced of an, it they announced they were going to do it. it and they gave yeah. everybody a lot of time to think about it and to rally. And I think here you got to get a facility ready. You got to, um, you, you got to move people. You got to release the people or transfer the people you're going to transfer. Um, but I think you want to get, all of that is going to take some time and you want to start, you want to get that moving as quickly as possible if you're going to get it done. Wow. So reporters now can be nosing around at potential recipient facilities looking for secret preparations for high security prisoner transfers. Any secret preparation of which, by the way, would be illegal and would be a violation of these transfer restrictions. Uh, and so if they saw any sign that any any facility was being readied, that would be a very clear indication that the president means to defy these statutes. Hasn't he been looking for places to put them, though? He's been looking, but he hasn't made any modifications to facilities, Ah, to my ah, knowledge. I see, I see. So if we start seeing, like, a new wing being built at the Supermax in Colorado. Yeah, if you start seeing, you know, a, a big flag going up outside any facility, future home of Guantanamo detainees, Yeah. That's a good sign. <laughs> All right. Watch that space. Watch that space. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to object lessons, yeah? All right. Yeah. Ben, would you like to go first? I would love to go first. I also have a Guantanamo-related object oh, lesson. Well, I didn't even plan um, that it's transition. It's a Guantanamo twofer. It is a Guantanamo so. twofer. So you will recall, speaking of people who have been sick, it's not just Shane It's and not Tamara. just me. It is also Shakir Amr the British resident who was just freed from Guantanamo. And only a year ago, his lawyers uh, filed a document that said, uh, argued that he should get habeas corpus relief because he was so sick. Um, the brief said, Shakar Amr is a sick man and he is not a young man. Mr. Amr should be released immediately because his illness has become so chronic that recovery, even with optimal circumstances and care, is precluded within one year and is likely to take many years or the full course of his remaining natural life. So he was in bad, bad shape. And even as of a week and a half ago when he was released, um, the headline in the Daily Mail read, Shocker will take years to regain health after his Guantanamo ordeal. Former detainee will be tested to see if he has been poisoned. Um, so that was, you know, his health was really bad. So I just want to point out, if you go to our show page uh, or to Lawfare, you can see these remarkable pictures of a hale and healthy-looking Shocker Amr taking a stroll through the streets of London, looking... Unlike a fellow who's been poisoned recently, doesn't look like he's got a big smile on his face. Um, and um, the headline in the Daily Mail now, 10 days after he was, you know, going to take forever to recover and he may be poisoned, the taste of freedom, Britain's last Guantanamo Bay prisoner, Shocker Amr, is all smiles 
as he's seen out in the fresh air for the first time. And the only reference to his All health... All we're missing is the Kardashians from that headline. Yeah, the only reference to his health in this whole article is, despite suffering from a number of health conditions, Mr. Amer looked happy and relaxed as he wandered in the fresh air from his family home in Battersea, South London. So there's hope for you, Shane. You're sick today, but like get to Battersea. Amer, you're no. gonna gonna be going for a walk, and the subject of paparazzi is uh, all too soon. Clearly, something is in the air in London. <laughs> yeah, I must get there at once. You must. I must go. <laughs> um, this is actually my lesson. Something I could use right now too. This is a uh, a dry gin martini. Oh yes. Uh, I, I, this is actually taken. How is this linked to national security, Shane? Despite, oh, well. I mean, you drink, other than the fact that you want one, you drink, and a, I want you one. drink a couple of them, and, <laughs> and national security problems just, just go, go away. <laughs> the words just start flowing. Uh, no, actually, I'm glad you asked, tomorrow. I don't know if you can see the coaster that that's sitting on and what. It oh says. yes. It says Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, and you can see OSS Society. And That's right. Bit. You went to the best dinner party in the world. Best. Seriously, it's one of the best parties ever. The OSS Society, the Office of Strategic Services, of course, and probably have to tell our listeners, but was the World War II intelligence espionage sabotage unit that gave rise to not just the modern, not just the CIA, but I would argue probably modern special operations forces. Um, and the OSS Society every year has this great black tie event where it's like a thousand, there must be a thousand people at this thing. And wow. You know, like John Brennan and Michael Vickers and Tom Ridge and Norton Schwartz and all these sort of, you know, big types are there. Brennan gave the, uh, award, big award of the night. It takes a long time. It's like a four hour event. Um, the OSS members who are there, and there are fewer and fewer every year, but are the, like, the best part of the whole thing. Uh, I, sp- I sat with a woman named Stephanie Rader, who's 100. I think she was celebrating her 100th birthday. She served um, at the U.S. Embassy in Poland at the close of the war in an undercover position, was nearly captured, uh, talked herself out of it from being captured by Russian soldiers, I think, actually, at the time, uh, and was nominated by her superiors in 45 for a Legion of Merit, which she has never received. Wow. And I'm told it's because, A, she was a woman, and, B, she was in the OSS, so she had two strikes against her. Wow. So... She was there. She suffers from Parkinson's. So she has trouble speaking, but uh, the audience got up and gave a round of applause to celebrate her birthday. And like, yeah, there are like there are people like this throughout the evening. There's these just tremendous stories from uh, men and women who are now uh, getting quite on in years, but look back on that period and talk about it, and in many ways remember very fondly and sort of shirk off the uh, uh, the accolades that are thrown on them as, you know, the generation that saved the world and their response is just, you know, we were just kids, what did we now? We were just huh. having fun. Awesome. Great Veterans Day story. Yeah, ah. it's, a, it's a great night. I recommend anybody going to it. You can buy tickets to it. The OSS Society Ball. Check it out. Uh, while these veterans are still able to come. Yeah. yeah. Awesome story. Yeah, it's so fun. So, my object for this week comes from a uh, a celebratory annual dinner that I attended last night uh, for the National Democratic Institute, um, which works to support democracy and human rights around the world. And last night, NDI honored uh, four Tunisians, uh, Minister Yassine Brahim, civil society activist Rafiq Halouani, and um, members of parliament Wafaf Mahlouf and Sayeda Ounisi, uh, and honored them with its Democracy Award, um, as a way of, you know, shining a lens on the accomplishments of Tunisia and its transition to democracy. And, you know, Tunisia 
has accomplished a lot. They got through two rounds of elections. They wrote a new constitution. Um, and yet, uh, because of national security challenges, because of the threat of domestic terrorism and spillover from the war in Libya, this democratic transition is still very, very fragile. It's at a, an incredibly delicate moment. And the government is actually struggling with, um, how much independent, you know, how much more leash to give to police and internal security and to the military. Do they need new counterterrorism legislation in order to fight this threat? And if so, can they do that without impinging on the, you know, hard-won freedoms that have just been enshrined in their new constitution? So last night was a really interesting moment to, to celebrate Tunisia's accomplishments, but also to throw a spotlight on this challenge. Um, and my object is... Um, the uh, the goodie bag takeaway from the evening. Ooh, the swag bag. The, well, you know, it's a swag bag from an NGO, <laughs> so it's a certain kind of swag. But it's a it's an adorable little ashtray or little dish, ceramic dish made in Tunisia, um, in a sort of traditional style of maroon and pastel uh, floral design. And uh, and in each little dish that each participant got was a delicious. A piece of baklava. So, <laughs> uh, That's so, no longer with us. No, I did consume the baklava yeah. immediately after the dinner, I admit. That's great. Yeah, That's so good. Uh, so good luck to Tunisia in dealing with your democracy, national security balance. Yeah, definitely. Okay, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our past shows and other shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, make sure when you download the podcast, please, please leave us a five-star rating and effusive, positive, praising comments. Not about Raytheon, however. Yeah, yeah, Rational Security this week is not brought to you by... Raytheon and Kleenex. Kleenex. No, it is not brought to you by Kleenex, when although you, we've consumed a lot of Kleenex. When you show. have a cold like, yes. like Tamara and Shane... And you need to record a podcast. Use... A handkerchief. Yeah. Use it's, puffs. It's, use puffs. Or it's just like no, paper no, towels. Use, use a handkerchief. You know, it's better for it's the reusable. environment. It's reusable. Right. It's a renewable resource. And uh, don't buy Kleenex. Don't I buy notice them. you have a big stack of paper towels here, Ben. We'll make use of those. That's, a, that's from when I spilled the coffee all over the place oh, the other day. Here. Yeah. That was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long, okay. many episodes ago. Our next ago. non-sponsor will be a house cleaning company for Ben's <laughs> yes. office. I'm definitely sponsoring that for you as a belated birthday present. Oh, my goodness. Yes, well, please leave us a review and don't buy Kleenex. Uh, the podcast is produced, as always, by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Jeb Bush and the Me Too players. <laughs> Did you notice how we didn't bring him up at all? Yeah, we oh no foreign policy. Right. <laughs> Jeb, Jeb <laughs> Bush and the Invisibles. Jeb Bush and the Invisibles. Oh, that was just going to be Jeb, not Jeb. <laughs> Jeb. Jeb with Jeb. an ellipsis. Jeb. <laughs> Jeb. <laughs> no, of course, our music was performed as always by Sophia Yan, who I'm pretty sure is not running for president, but if she were, would definitely have a more, co- more coherent foreign policy than Ben Carson. Yeah, I think she'd be a neocon. Yeah, oh, she totally would. <laughs> yeah. On behalf of my good friends tomorrow, Wittis and Ben Wittis. I'm Shane Harris, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.